Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finn Arne Jørgensen. And I am Dolly Jørgensen, not sitting next to Finn Arne today. So, and today we have with us then uh, Jonathan Saha, who's Associate Professor in South Asian History at Durham University in the UK. Uh, and he's here to talk about his new book, Colonizing Animals, Interspecies Empire in Myanmar. Uh, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2021. So we'll just go straight to you, Jonathan. Thank you both. And thank you for inviting me to, to talk a little bit about my book. So um, I'm going to very quickly tell you a little bit about where the book came out of, where the ideas developed, and what the main arguments are, and then a little bit about, about the content. And hopefully I'll be able to keep that within 15 minutes, and then I really look forward to hearing people's questions or thoughts or reflections coming out of that. So in many ways, I was never really an environmental historian or an animal historian when I started out on this project. I was, and I think still remain, a historian of British colonialism in Myanmar. And my work that came out in the early 2010s was focused really on histories of crime and histories of corruption within the colonial state in Myanmar. And what I was interested in was how people experienced colonialism in their everyday lives. And in some ways, that sort of set of concerns have remained present in, in doing this project on animals. But the animal project came about really with a growing sense of dissatisfaction, partly with my own work, partly with the state of the field, in that some aspects of material lives, materiality in general, was just absent, certainly absent from my own work. Um, and there were two areas of that that I found or, or increasingly found frustrating. One was the absence of the natural world at all, and the other was the absence of any consideration of, of capitalism as a historical formation that emerged in the time. And so in a sense, when I wrote my history of corruption in the colonial state in the Arawadi Delta of, of Myanmar, those two things were unconsidered given elements of that past. Um, and so when I started on the project of looking at the history of animals in the colony, it, it gave me a route into addressing those things which had previously been absent and thinking about them as an active part of those histories that I'd, I'd previously written. And the extent to which I was keeping animals out really struck me when I went back through the colonial records and reports from the Rangoon Mental Hospitals, which I'd written about um, and I think I public, published on it in about 2012. When I was looking back through those, I realized that I had just filtered out the presence of the animals in that archive. There was a large dairy herd in there, animals being, being used to um, treat the, the ailing humans, either as pets, but often as food and forms of nourishment. So there was all sorts of animals within the, the context um, of those archives. I just sort of consciously or unconsciously filtered out. I was at the University of Bristol when I started this project, and there were a few people there who were really involved in, in doing histories of animals. And it invited me to give a, a paper just on elephants, because I'd been casually doing bits and bobs on it. 
not anything serious. So um, Dr. An Andrew Flack and uh, Professor Peter Coates there, um, who may be familiar to some of you. Um, and having done that and presented at this conference, which they organized on empires and animals, it just kind of spiraled from there. And what I started initially was, was writing a blog. I didn't really have a book project or anything like that in mind. Um, and there I picked up on bits of sources which I had, which animals were in and wrote a little bit about it and sort of wrote my way into, into the project. And so perhaps unusually, you can sort of trace the development of idea, my ideas through, through that blog from the very early sort of rudimentary ideas I have and my sort of grappling and doubts over some of the aspects of um, the history of animals and my growing awareness of the field and increasingly, I hope, sophisticated ideas about where that field might go and what it might do for me and developing over the, the years of, of doing that. And I was very fortunate in 2014 to get a little grant to go out to Myanmar and do a bit more archival research. And uh, three years after that, I got a bit more money to go and do some work with an elephant sanctuary and present some of the historical photographs that I've been able to develop. So the projects had all sorts of different tendril elements to it that have gone off in different tangents. But eventually it culminated into a book once I was able to find, I guess, the central arguments that um, I thought I, I could contribute to. And it was a bit of a, a journey to finding what those were. I must admit to having had my sort of moments of, of doubt about the, the importance, the pertinence, the, the relevance, the resonances of a project on colonial animals or colonized animals in the context of what was, what was happening and unfolding within Myanmar itself from 2017 and the, uh, the expulsion of the Rohingya populations from, from Myanmar, if, uh, violence with genocidal intent, as the UN has described it. And then just as I was putting the finishing touches to the book, the, the military coup of last year. And those things, I think, eventually were, were there, were present, I guess, in what I was thinking about and my doubts about the project. And as a result shaped, I think, the centrality of, of some of the arguments that I was, I was making. So the book itself tackles two things, I think, primarily. One is the anthropocentrism of imperial history, something which I think still lingers in, in a lot of sort of mainstream imperial history. But the second was the Eurocentrism of animal history. And I think this became more of my critique and or more of the sort of animating critique of the book. And it picks up on one, I think, really crucial area of that uh, Eurocentrism. And that is the absence in a lot of books, even where they deal with the sort of colonized world and the wider imperial stories of animal history, the failure to really pick up on subalternized human populations within that, their understandings of animals and their relationships with animals. So I think the, the context of my concern about the marginalization of, of various Burmese peoples 
um, was, was filtering in to my concerns about the, the shape of animal history. And as a result, the book shifted from being a sort of out and out animal history to being what I've called an interspecies study, an interspecies history. That means two things in a sense. One is that it's not just looking at one particular species of non-human animal in the book. I, I try and write it in such a way as to bring in a variety of different species, although those do require different narrative techniques and, um, and approaches, something I can talk about if people are interested. But the second thing was it was really to focus on the particular interspecies relationship between subaltern colonized Burmese peoples and animals. And there were two major themes, sort of themes might not be the right word, sort of underlying processes, if you like, that became the focus of the book and, and the primary argument of the book. These were processes which I think are the, the deeper processes that restructured the relationships between colonized humans and animals during the period of colonialism. The first is the commodification of animals. Um, now that happens more um, intensively for some creatures than others, but increasingly the, the construction of a market society in Myanmar comes to become a very powerful mode of interacting with animals, mostly through market society and through conceptions of, of animals as, as commodities. And the second is the importance of colonial contestations. And that is the battle between the colonial state, colonial commercial activities and organizations and colonized people, mostly but not exclusively through the organs of the anti-colonial nationalist movements. Now, both of these have been covered to an extent by animal history, but not really at any great depth. Um, animal history, particularly in imperial animal history, had been very adept at dealing with the history of representations. But that particular powerful, almost ubiquitous mode of representation, that is the form of the commodity and exchange value, had not been fully interrogated by imperial historians of animals. And as for nationalism and anti-colonial nationalism, it was almost entirely absent in, in animal history. Whereas in histories of Asia and South Asia, it has been one of the most predominating historiographic areas of debate, um, if not the most dominant since, since at least the eighties. So those were the sort of major underlying processes that the book sought to unfold. And it does so in six chapters, in addition to an introduction and a, and a conclusion. So the introduction kind of outlines this problem and the idea of interspecies empire. And I do so through tackling uh, the problem of the multivariant nature of the word and meaning of difference, something that both post-colonial approaches and post-humanist approaches to history have grappled with. But actually, in those two traditions, difference and what they mean by difference is itself quite different. I can say more about that if people wish. The first chapter is 
described as valuing animals. And in some ways, it's the most conceptual one. I look at the different ways in which animals get rendered into commodities, but I talk here predominantly about working animals being turned into what I call undead capital, which is using Haraway's notions of lively capital and Marx's notion of um, means of production being the embodiment of dead labor uh, to describe cattle and elephants as inhabiting both of those things. They are valued because of their sentient capabilities and ability to work in particular labor processes, but also it's recognizing that by themselves, without a labor regime around them, those animals aren't going to be involved in those labor processes off their own back. And then in the second part, I look at how colonial governmentality attempted to categorize creatures into one of three different biopolitical um, statuses, either as subjects, creatures who needed to be understood on their own terms and brought into forms of governance and um, based on an attempt to understand them, as objects, creatures to be experimented with or um, dominated in, in a way that did not really try to recognize them as um, subjects in their own right. And then as abject, creatures whose um, being was of no concern and could be killed without any set of considerations at all. So subject, object, abject become a defining feature of that. The chapters that follow from there are much more empirical in, in, in the ideas and the, the themes that they pick up. So chapter two is called Vital Resources, and that looks at the ways that elephants and cattle were turned in to working animals and the importance of them in the emergence of the two major industries in colonial Myanmar, the timber industry and the rice industry. And I pay particular attention to the construction of these creatures as working animals alongside the creation of human labor reserves that were needed to, um, to maintain them and the tensions that came out of that. The chapter following this is called Regulating Death and it picks up on these themes in a, in a wider frame. So it looks at the First of all, it looks at the animals who are a direct threat to cattle, so crocodiles and, and tigers, and the ways that the colonial regime attempted to encourage people to kill those creatures through the creation of a market in their carcasses. So trying to turn the um, social benefit of there being fewer threats to cattle and humans into an exchange value that was realizable as, as money. And the second half of that chapter looks at the similarity between those attempts to encourage the killing of animals to the attempts to preserve the lives of other types of animals. So um, special types of deer, rhinoceros, creatures which were deemed to be endangered. And so the, the market was created there through licenses and fines. So there's a, there's a similarity in what's going on in these somewhat seemingly opposed areas of colonial policy. I then move on to the area which moves away from commoditizing animals, which is what those two chapters really look at, to thinking about the colonial context. So imperial differentiations is really building on a, a, an article I wrote a, a few years ago called Among the Beasts of Burma, and it looks at the colonial regime's um, sort of repertoire of images that differentiate 
the Burmese from the British on the basis of their relationships with, with animals. Chapter five is where it gets, I think, a bit more interesting, which looks at how anti-colonial Burmese nationalists also used animals themselves to generate a counter-hegemonic notion of what the Burmese nation is. And those were subversive in how they played with imperial ideas of animals, sometimes making uh, Europeans appear more like animals than the Burmese and sort of inverting a lot of those colonial stereotypes, but also had their own internal notions of difference going on and particularly sort of rhetorics that were Indophobic or, or Orlando uh, Islamophobic were, were elements of some of these some of these discourses. Chapter six is called Revolting Creatures, and that looks at continues to look at anti-colonial nationalism, but also a more wider set of anti-colonial practices by looking at a major peasant rebellion that occurs in 1930 and looking at how animals were embedded within that, both materially and symbolically. And then looking at what happens during the Japanese occupation and how as British rule collapsed, animals became much more present in a troubling way to British folk remaining in the city as they retreated. The conclusion picks up on a lot of these themes, but does throw through asking the question of, is animal history still radical? What I do is return to some of Erica Fudge's early works and talk about why, why do we still do animal history? What, what is it offering? And what I argue is, in the context of the Anthropocene in which animals have been often reduced just to symbols or signs or measurable amounts of environmental degradation, we might think about animals still as being useful to explore in and of their own right, because for an animal to exist, any organism to exist and to continue to exist, implicitly and implicated indeed in their lives is a wider range of ecological niches. And so the preservation of animals and the caring for animals in our narratives is also a caring for others connected and around them, including subaltern peoples whose lives are bound up with them. I then use that to pick up on two contemporary issues in Myanmar. One is the survival of elephants, most of whom are now working, whose lives are tied to the fate of the timber industry. And I talk about the need for thinking about any processes of rewilding inherently needs to deal with poverty alleviation. And then contrary to this, I look at the fate of um, Indian origin or Indian heritage Muslims in Myanmar and their campaigns by right-wing Buddhists to try and attack them through things like cattle slaughter and the need to think very differently about that by deconstructing nationalism as part of what we do in thinking about animal history and, and what the politics of that might be. So that's the book in a nutshell. I think I went just over 15 minutes, but I'd be really keen to hear people's thoughts and, um, and to discuss it further with you all. So thanks. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I mean, that was a great introduction um, to this book. And I think that your um, 
both your case is really interesting, but the larger theoretical framework that you're placing it into is also really interesting and really important for um, animal history. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking about here was about, um, you know, the animal as then this colonial subject, object, object. Um, how does that relate then to the humans that are also colonized at the same time? Do they get in those same three categories and how do they relate then with, with the animals that are put in those same categories? Yeah, so hu humans can fall in, that, in those categories as well. And what I should say is that no one, no creature, human or otherwise, are sort of always definitively in one category or the other there's a lot of slippage between those it's just more a useful grid for understanding what's happening in any particular moment to to a living sentient creature um, and i think what it can tell you is moments where prioritization between different species might be occurring in terms of the colonial states concerns so one illustration of that might be the way that in the 1920s and 30s in uh, elephant camps there were two species specific if you like epidemic outbreaks occurring on a regularity uh, amongst elephants there were a series of anthrax outbreaks and amongst uzis or elephant drivers there was outbreaks of beriberi now the timber firms eventually get together with the colonial state and invest a huge amount in bringing veterinarians over and investing in the ways of trying to inoculate um, elephants from, from anthrax. There is no comparable level of investment or work done on beriberi, not just in India, not just in Myanmar, but, but across British India. It, it, it's a somewhat of a neglected disease, but one that affects particularly labouring populations like like elephant drivers and um, so i mean there is some work that does does get in there but it is comparatively neglected so there you can start to see some of that sort of governmental prioritization about biopolitics and so the that notion of those different statuses those different biopolitical statuses helps me think through those knotty issues of of where the politics of care is being deployed and where it isn't And I'll just remind everybody that you're welcome to indicate in the chat either that you have a question, in which case I'll call on you, or to actually write out your question if you're in a situation where you don't want to ask it uh, orally yourself, and I'll ask it for you. Um, and but before I go there, um, the other thing I, I thought was really interesting, Jonathan, was your discussion of how this started as a blog, um, because my project uh, book also started exactly that way, if you will. I I. I actually knew I was wanting to write a monograph, but but I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, I didn't really, and 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 so in the process, it, it changed tremendously. And so I was wondering um, how you think it changed. What what was it that doing that kind of regular work, regular engaging with material, changed your process as as a historian? I think quite, so it was partly out of necessity. 
So when I when I started this project, I was a teaching fellow. I had seven modules which I was designing and teaching. It was a fraught time, and I was aware that you know so much of writing is practice. And I've been fortunate that um, I, I I so far at least not not found that difficult. Maybe I don't have enough shame. I don't worry about sort of putting stuff out there very much. And so um, you know if I had a couple of hours between classes or even sometimes as little as 40 minutes I would try and just write something uh, 100 words or so of something that I've been looking at or some of the sources I've been using in my teaching and the animal implications of it and just getting it out there and it meant that uh, my writing I think improved as a maybe a more banal thing and I certainly got more concise as a writer and and actually, I wanted to write the book in short 3,000 word chapters when I eventually got to it, but the publisher wasn't, and the reviewers weren't particularly enamored of that structure, so it all got rejigged. But I think the the biggest impact really of, of doing it that way was that um, it, it just got me to, to think about different lengths, different forms, uh, to think about showcasing evidence in different ways and it also just got me to try out and practice check out arguments did did arguments land did they work um in a, in a space that was i guess a, a bit a bit safer in a, in a way um even though possibly more people will read that than the book but either way it felt it at least felt a bit more sort of you could i felt like i could be more playful in those in, in that space if that makes sense although sadly i think the sad thing was since I shifted from trying to publish stuff out of it, the blog has become increasingly neglected. So maybe now the book's out, I might be able to return to it. I think that's uh, experience many are like sharing also then with uh, shifting modes then from blog to, to book that it's, yeah, it's hard to find time and attention for everything. Um, so I wanted to ask about the, animals because you're talking about you know the animals as subject object and abject but i was wondering also a bit about animals as agents or animals as creatures that have agency and their own interest in this so are they also in a way revolting and non-cooperative animals uh, and uh if so, I mean, what kind of, how do you go about in your book to give a voice to such, or to the animals' perspectives and sources for that? Yeah, so I guess by the time I got into this book, I was, to, to be sort of candid, I guess, frankly, done with the discussions of agency and animals. And it just was, it's just basically my starting point from it but one thing I've, I've never written this down anywhere but it's something I, I find myself saying a lot is I think there needs to be more overt separation between discussions of animal agency which if we take it to be a material um, set of arrangements that, that allow a certain creature in any particular network to have an impact beyond itself and to be sort of responsive to the network that it's within, then an agency is a, is a, is a starting point for, for most of the history which we write. And I think it's not too problematic a, a thing to, to consider. Um, in fact, it might even be a bit banal. If we separate agency from subjective experience, 
which is a different thing, right? Then, then actually, if we're attuned to what we're talking about at any particular moment, then I think we've got more freedom to, to, to engage with those things. So there's all sorts of situations where creatures have, have agency, but we might not be able to access their subjective experience of that particular moment. Um, and that's fine. So we can talk about materially how they're impacting that stuff. And that's there throughout the book, right? There's, it's even when I'm writing about anti-colonial nationalists, um, so there's a, there's a, for instance, to give a concrete example of this, there's a uh, gossip column in uh, Burmese nationalist newspaper called Town Mouse, although in, in Burmese it's actually Big Shrew. Um, and I talk a little bit about why one in one it's mouse and the other it's shrew and the behaviours of those different creatures and how people live alongside of them um, and the way that sort of a fly on the wall, to note a different idiom, um, view of urban life sort of includes a particular way of thinking about that creature and how they lived alongside them. So the material agency side of it is really easy to include. Subjective experience is somewhat different um, and uh, more or less different according to different creatures. Different creatures have different experiential worlds, have different umbelt, you know, we might call it as. And those different subjective experiences, I think, are um, <laughs> more or less easy to incorporate into writing. Elephants' experiences of the world, I found quite easy to, there's a lot of writing on their um, sort of sensory capacities and sensory worlds. And so the chapter, the, the bits on elephants do try and pick up where I can on the experiences of, of elephants. I must admit, subjective experiences of creatures are not something that's very central to to the book, but I've picked up elsewhere. But what I'm hoping to do following this is something that does center subjective experience a, a little bit more. So I guess my answer to your question is, agency is there implicitly throughout. It's just not really discussed because I sort of take it now as, a, as an expectation of animal history, but that's there. And um, subjective experience is there a little bit, but not as much as in retrospect, I would have liked it to have been. Um, but uh, I, th I think it's, it's something that is possible to do more extensively. One of the things you brought up there was about difference of different animals, right? Um, and, and Roderick had a question in, in the chat about um, how animal history in the Burma Highlands might differ from community to community. So the difference, if you will, within even this thing uh, that, that has a nation state label, and of course that is is also a colonial uh you know history to create a thing that that gets a name and a label um geographically so um how it might be different in different communities and he brings up specifically uh thinking about dogs and and um that you had alluded in your blog uh to domesticated dogs and different lives um so could you say a little bit more about kind of difference across this country or about communities yeah so i mean it's a it's a really good point and it's really important um, and it can be captured i think still by those underlying um processes which i'm which i'm talking about the book tends to take those dominant modes of that emerging so bama ethnic nationalism so majoritarian nationalism and um, and uh those two big modes of economic processes now of those the 
uh, whilst there are a lot of different ethnicities who are involved in the um, in the rice industry, it's, it's the timber industry where we see this connecting most in the histories that I look at, partly because um, the, there's an ethnic segmentation in the labor force for uh, timber industries, particularly amongst elephant drivers. So if you take a firm like the Bombay Burma Trading Corporation, they rely heavily on Cayenne and Kachin um, ethnicity groups in, uh, in, in training and driving elephants. Now, the discourse about that is very much very romanticized. This is populations that have always lived and worked with these creatures. And whilst there is obviously, there has been a history of greater um, familiarity with elephants within those upland communities because of their shared habitats, um, the massive increase in the number of working elephants from around 1,000 in 1900 to somewhere in the region of, of, of 10,000 by 1940 means that there is a huge knowledge transfer going on within those communities to reskill a large number of people to, to fill those, those roles. Um, and some of that does then feed into various forms of uh, uh, nationalism within those, within those communities as well. And so um, elephant capturing firms, Cayenne uh, owned elephant capturing firms and um, become quite uh, relatively wealthy um, and capture white elephants and those become symbols of their loyalty to the crown. And so you can see some of that engagement with creatures playing out in those regions too. In terms of dogs, and what I should say there is, is there's loads more to be done uh, in that in that history, um, and um, my book barely barely scratches the the surface of it, really, um, in terms of thinking about different belief systems, of cultural practices, of dietary habits, of, of a whole world of agricultural processes, a whole world of differences across Myanmar that I, I'm just I'm not doing. I'm, I'm not doing that, and um, it's important work that should does need to be done at some point as well. Um, in terms of dogs, um, I do pick up on dogs a lot. I use them really to illustrate the the, um, the uh, subject, object, abject difference because it's a really powerful sets of sources to pick out those difference. You know, pet dogs, rabid dogs, and um, and stray dogs all of which inhabit subject, object, abject at different moments. And sometimes a creature can go through those various stages in, in the space of an hour. Um, and so that, that tends to be where I, where I pick up on dogs and looking at some of the controversies over, say, killing them uh, and the way that those sort of nestle within um, the divisions between colonizer and colonized, or particularly between um, British colonizers and uh, sort of mobilized Buddhist communities um, around protecting them and not killing them. Um, so that, that's where dogs come up uh, in the book in the main, although there may well be other references to them, but my mind is, is, is struggling to remember now. Well, I was wondering then in thinking about, well, the communities and um, potential difference, the the ways could you say more about the ways in which the british colonial governments used or didn't use the knowledges 
that these locals had um, about the animals and were there particular kinds of animals say, okay, elephants, somehow you might rely on their knowledge more than you would on a cow or, or was that not true? So, so are there, what's the relationship, I guess, about knowledge systems and, and, you know, that kind of thing uh, between the colonizers and colonized? Yeah, I mean, so uh, you see it more with, with certain creatures over others, or at least in certain spaces, uh, colonizers are forced to acknowledge their reliance, whereas in others they're in a stronger position to hide it. So a lot of natural historical writings, for instance, are, are more positioned to um, play down the knowledge exchange going on when uh, their guides are taking them around place to place. And that can be reduced to sort of banal forms of knowledge. But actually, when you read between the lines, it actually belies a much deeper set of understandings that exist there. It's a story which has been told by many others. Um, elephants, though, they are forced into a position of, of relying more on or acknowledging the extent to which they rely on what they describe as experiential or sort of uh, and sort of some naturalized knowledge that elephant drivers have about elephants and about remedies. Um, and so uh, you can see that, you can see attempts to try and document that come through um, and not always driven by the state and um, sometimes driven by timber firms and sometimes actually driven by staff within those timber firms. So Burmese um, staff who occupy higher positions in these timber firms than most elephant drivers, but not into the upper echelons of the organizations, do compile and, and print um, uh, treatises on uh, elephant diseases um, and remedies and elephant care. And uh, some of that you can see trickle into uh, colonial veterinarians' writings on this. So the parts of an elephant's body, the types of food that it has, often never get translated out of out of Burmese for the inability of the colonizer to find the corresponding thing. Um, so there's that going on, the, the colonizer using all of that stuff. What I think is more interesting in some ways and is sort of connected to this history because it's about indigenous um, people's engagements with this um, world of knowledge is the extent to which colonized Burmese people are, in, are, are seeking out their own uh, learning about animals in this time frame um, in ways that the colonizer is either unaware of or not interested in. And it's appearing in popular magazines, there's discussions of evolution and how that might fit with Buddhism. There's uh, sort of nationalist tracts or satirical works that contain within them really detailed understandings and discussions of Darwin or a drawing on European texts and bringing them into new frameworks and understandings. And so, you know, nowhere are these divisions between Western knowledge and Burmese knowledge um, discrete. And nowhere are they fully policed or separated out. Um, actors are engaging in all sorts of creative ways in the context of colonial modernity and, and animals are being reframed through those creative engagements. 
So I wanted to ask a um, somewhat comparative question. I mean, if you think about the British colonizers, I mean, they were present in large parts of the world. They came to different parts. And in all of these places, they, I mean, they exported a particular mindset. I mean, you know, the, the colonizing modernity or capitalism, whatever you want to call it. And they come into local situations where there are already established relationships between people, nature, animals, and so on. Uh, the question then is, do you think that there's something like unique, special to the, uh, the Burma situation, like the particular constellations of animals' relationships become something else, another form of colonized country, another like variation of capitalism or is it the same story just with different animals so i think um the the specifics to the story are really important they're important for myanmar but i think they're important for, for other places as well and it was important for me that the whole whole story was embedded in the in the history of myanmar itself um to, to give that meaning but I do think the abstract arguments are um, are ones that I think I think will work in other parts of the world for the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, which is that one of the most profound shifts is the emergence of of capitalism and uh, that the anti-colonial context is a sorry the the colonial contest is is a fundamental reshaping of context for reshaping. Um, people's conceptions of animals. Now, what I don't want to give the impression of is the sense that capitalism is uh, a sort of effect of colonialism and of the colonial state, which it's not. It is, it is a process that has its own uh, independent roots and processes um, and effects, and it's not in the control of colonial actors. Um, and if you take something like the rice industry in Myanmar, um, that is, it's not a process which is driven by the colonial state. It's a process which is driven by uh, Burmese migrants, uh, Indian flows of, 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 of credit. Um, it, it's not a colonial state driven process. Um, and uh, the engagements of various uh, Burmese communities um, with things like the timber industry are, are not, driven by the colonial state. Um, now that's not to say that they're free choices on the behalf of, uh, of colonized people. Um, capitalism has its own modes of uh, coercion involved in it, but I don't want to reduce capitalism to, to a, a set of colonial policies. And I, and I think that would be um, a, a very simplistic view of it. Nor do I want to see the colonial state as operating purely as a sort of, um, captive state of capitalist forces. There are all sorts of tensions between commercial outfits and the colonial state itself. Um, and colonial state policies don't necessarily help various actors caught up in, uh, in these new modes of industry. And that's part of what plays out and why Burmese peasants end up not benefiting from the massive rice boom that emerges. So, you know, all there's no way of talking about any of these subjects without talking about the detail of the specifics in which they play out. And I, I think that's the 
the the trick right is that we can talk about these abstract things and really what i'm telling you what i'm saying is that historians looking in other contexts need to be alert to these particular forms of processes playing out even though they will play out in ways that may well be unrecognizable to uh, to the Myanmar context. But I do think there's still empirical generic things which emerge when you look into it. So if we take something like um, conservation laws, one of my points is that if you, if you think about those as creating a market, all of a sudden it's much easier to understand the perverse incentives that emerge in, in game laws, that there's a, there's a calculation you can make about is the fine worth the, is the risk of the fine worth paying the fee now that is a is a problem that occurs again and again in in conservation situations and um, is there enough actual effective material policing for the fine to be likely to be imposed um are the are there other ways of getting permission to kill creatures through corruption and bribery all of these things are the effects of these being effectively market solutions to, to, to problems of regulating wildlife and protected creatures. Um, and those reoccur in, in other contexts. And um, the way that they play out, again, is different, but, but yeah. I hope that answers it and not just a Oh, answer. yeah. I mean, that was, that was a really uh, great answer, I think, and in, in, in thinking about the relationship between uh, colonial governments and um, the industry, the capitalism, uh, and, and that their businesses, um, and those aren't necessarily always in control. Even if even if uh, colonial governments might want to be, they they, they aren't. Um, and and so there are processes that that can can spin out in different directions. I think, and and so as you're saying, there is a specificity to your history. Um, but yet you would expect to see those same types of processes happen elsewhere as well. Now, one of the things you, you mentioned was you have a chapter on, on rebels. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about um, the ways in which animals would be used then as, a, as an anti, you know, enrolled in the anti-colonial cause, um, you know, for good or for bad. Uh, in that. So could you say a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things which happens in the Sayasam Rebellion is, and is, has not really been noted, is the importance of animals logistically to the, the peasant rebellion. And this is particularly clear in the opening moments of the rebellion, where they uh, attack various outposts to arm themselves but they also take elephants in the, in those moments and um, it turns out the elephants aren't particularly useful for them particularly as the, the rebellion moves into sort of more guerrilla warfare as um, almost 10,000 Indian troops are sent to Myanmar to, to crush the rebellion and it really is needs to be emphasized how big this rebellion is it, it lasts for about 18 months it is probably one of if not the largest peasant rebellion in south asia after 1857 and um, half of myanmar which is the largest um territorially largest province of, of british india at the time goes into rebellion it's huge um but anyway 
But what it tells us, I think, is also another set of constituencies that were involved in the rebellion, because you can't just go and capture elephants, right? You need to take a driver with them as well. So that tells us a little bit about some of the tensions which are going on in there. Um, and the, in, the, in the few years prior to the Siasan Rebellion kicking off, there were wildcat strikes that hit some of the elephant camps. And striking whilst you're looking after elephants is a very difficult thing to do because those elephants aren't yours, but you're responsible for their welfare. And so basically the standoff, the tension in those strikes are between elephant drivers not attending to their elephants and white supervisors seeing how long they're willing to go whilst their elephants' health deteriorates. It's a pretty nasty situation, if you like. So you see elephants being used in that way. The other area where, elephant, where animals become really pertinent in the rebellion is um, around cattle herders. So there is a element of um, xenophobia that attends to some of the violence of the Re peasant rebellion. And the particular group who are targeted for some of this violence are Indian cattle herders. Now, a lot of the explanations for the Sayasan Rebellion, that it's an economically motivated revolt or that it's a sort of emergence of a, a, a pre-colonial tradition of anti-colonial resistance or of, of new kings emerging, or that it's a sort of form of anti-colonial grievance attached to modern forms of you know, nationalist politicking, whatever it might be, don't really have a ready explanation for why these cattle herders are attacked. But in the, the book, across the book, you can see this emergence of Indian cattle herders becoming perceived as a threat to Burmese oxen. And this is part of what's playing out here in the rebellion. And also the importance of cattle as a cause of indebtedness within peasant communities. Um, and so targeting, and they're, they're deliberately targeting them, not just because they're Indian, but because they're associated with cattle. The, the, the co-association is central here. And um, the targeting of them gives us another set of explanations for some of the peasant grievances going on in the rebellion itself. So their animals aren't necessarily rebels, but they are being sort of caught up in this and then let free. So no one is take, they're not keeping these cattle. They're not taking them to sell or to use themselves or to distribute amongst peasant communities. They, they're just releasing them. They're, they're going off. Um, so there are interesting things happening in the rebellion around, around that in particular. So you described your uh, trajectory then working from the previous book into this one. So where does this lead you then for the next project? Uh, what are you going to be working on there? Well, I plan on spending the next couple of years having an existential crisis about what I do and then something hopefully emerging out of that. But what I'm trying to actively do to, to, to stave that off is, so I'm, I'm working currently on, on the Siasan uh, Rebellion a little bit, trying to get into those records a bit more deeply, partly because I'm still not fully satisfied with my own explanation for some of those massacres. And so I'm trying to get into that 
but having got into that a bit more has picked up well it's picked up some more interesting animal stuff so there is some oafs have been preserved from that time and there's a lot of interesting stuff about not killing animals that are emerging in there that and um, tells me some stuff but there's also other areas of ethnic conflict emerging within that particular peasant rebellion that i think still require some some thinking and some explanation and exploration but i'm also moving towards thinking of writing a a larger book on colonialism in Asia, but from from a through a series of animal biographies, um, and seeing how that how that works, um, treating animals, trying to do some of that subjective experience of animals, working with uh, ecological literature and some animal sentience literature, just to to give me some some clues for engaging uh, how that history might be imaginatively written about from that perspective. Because um, this is much more a structural study in some ways, uh, and this would be something a, a bit more of a creative history into it, I think. Um, so those are some of the things which I'm sort of tinkering with, which, which, which come out of this, this particular study, yeah. There's plenty in there, of course. Uh, so I'm wondering then, since you're talking about this animal biography, is that there's some enthusiasm in the chat uh, about about that too? Then, uh, how does your approach to animal history then relate to your engagement in environmental history? Uh, are there intersections? Because there are, of course, different fields uh, with some overlap. So does yours overlap? Yeah. So less so in the book. But I, re I gave a talk to the Royal Historical Society, which has just, just been published open access now online, um, called Accumulations and Cascades. And what I do there is, is use the ecological concept of cascade, uh, mostly for the notion of trophic cascades, but this is, it's been used by ecologists more broadly than that as well. So I'm, I'm trying to use that to look at what happens to Burmese elephants in the colonial period. And from understanding what, elephants do within the ecosystems see how that affects other creatures downstream from the elephant in those uh, uh, in those ecosystems and what that allows me to do is to say a little bit about how dung beetles were largely affected by colonialism how frogs were affected by colonialism these creatures whose habitats food sources behaviors were not determined, but largely shaped by the presence of these, you know, gigantic mammals whose ranges are, you know, largely restricted in, in the colonial period, uh, whose behaviors change, whose demographics shift dramatically in this time frame. Um, and so that's that's where I've been sort of teetering over into environmental history um, more, more generally and, and trying to say something to, to that field. So and that made me really wonder then if, if, if you think about the situation today then, do you see attempts at you know, restoring, rewilding, you know, changing environments and reintroducing animals or conserving animals in particular ways? And if there are connections then with political movements, decolonial movements, etc., uh, just curious. 
Um, so yeah, so the, there are points of connection. Um, before the coup, there was a major problem for Burmese elephants, which was there were some quite relatively effective restrictions on logging in certain parts of Myanmar. Not not everywhere, but but some parts of Myanmar, which had a sort of environmental gain. Um, the rate of logging in Myanmar, the rate of deforestation in Myanmar was second only to Brazil, I think. Um, and uh, is is it, the forests in Myanmar were one of the few sort of large contiguous areas of forests which which were still there in in monsoon Asia. And, and so there was a benefit to that, but the problem it left was thousands and thousands of of potentially unemployed Burmese elephants. Now the, the the state's response to that was to try and pivot to tourism, but that was never really going to be particularly sustainable or necessarily very good for the elephants, whose conditions within the timber industry were, whilst problematic, much better than the uh, the type of um, conditions within, within which uh, elephants were, Asian elephants were being kept in tourist industry and because they, they're allowed to, to roam relatively freely um, and the veterinary care was was pretty was, was quite good in Myanmar. Now then at that same moment there was a whole series of conversations in Thailand about, about elephants there about rewilding and the benefits of rewilding and process of rewilding working with ethnic minority groups that tend elephants to to find processes of find ways of pathways of rewilding, and some of the literature on Myanmar more specifically about uh, peasant communities' views of rewilding were showing how much those things were sh shaped by the precarity and poverty of those human groups, and so there were interesting conversations to be had about how how that could happen. Now, where that actually exists in a political form in Myanmar is in uh, projects uh, for indigenous forest communities and um, trying to preserve the habitats and wildlife of those communities as part of their political project of preserving their own ways of life. And so one great project was the Salween Peace Park, for instance, which is uh, in the Salween forests, which had historically been um, a Cayenne communities area. And that had been taken off and been building a sort of grassroots mode of uh, ecological indigenous activism. Sadly, though, now a place hugely under threat through military attacks on Cayenne populations and through the bombing of that region. So, yeah. Thanks. All right, our time is up, so we need to wrap up then. So thank you to uh, Jonathan Saha for uh, talking about his book, uh, Colonizing Animals, Interspecies Empire in Myanmar, which came out with Cambridge University Press last year. So thank you, and thank you to everyone who's here. Yeah, thank you, everyone, for coming, particularly those people whose names are familiar to me. It's lovely to, to virtually know you're about in there.